murder. <laughs> murder, right? Uh, murder, I think, uh, for many of us, is a concept only, right? Uh, I don't think any of us have ever actually taken a weapon to someone and ended their life. And if you have, I'd really like to talk that through with you afterwards. It'd be great to hear about that and process that with you, maybe. Um, but I think for, for most of us, uh, terms like this uh, uh, have not been relevant for many, many years for us personally. However, recently, uh, a term like murder has actually had some new life breathed into it. Um, I had a, a brief argument on Facebook, which is the very best place to have arguments, as you know. Um, I posted a picture of a rifle that I'd bought on Facebook, and Jude afterwards counselled me that maybe that wasn't the smartest thing to do uh, in my position to post that. Um, but I did, and uh, when I posted this, I was called a murderer by somebody, somebody I'd never met before, and they quoted this passage and they said, doesn't the Bible tell us not to kill? You'll see that many people take the killing of animals to be murder. Uh, maybe you've seen that uh, recently in some posts on Facebook. Did you get the one where uh, somebody's putting stickers on the packets of meat in Woolies and Coles and stuff like that, and the sticker says something like, um, hi, and with a little picture of a cow, hi, my name's Cecile, and your choice means that I have lost my life. This idea that it's a, a person, a name has been given to this cow, it's been given personhood. And it's really worth considering, isn't it, what, what murder actually means? What does, what does killing mean? What does it mean to obey this commandment? Where's the line to be drawn? What do we do with, with a topic like murder, uh, sorry, like war, when God tells us not to murder? What does this imply for self-defense and our ability to defend our families? What about cases of manslaughter or negligence? What are we supposed to get out of a commandment like this? There's two main things that I want us to understand about this commandment today. And I think they're going to be incredibly helpful for us all to grasp and even challenge the view that you have of yourselves as well as adult others. And the first thing I want us to see is that God sees human life as incredibly precious. God sees human life as incredibly precious. And to understand this, we really need to have a look at what the word murder or kill, if you're reading from the King James, actually means. And murder, we need to know, is not actually encompassing all types of killing. Murder here, I'll, I'll give you a definition, murder here is the unauthorised taking of human life. The unauthorised taking of human life. We'll start with the human part and open that up and then jump to the unauthorised part in a minute. So this doesn't relate to the killing of animals for food, for instance. Uh, if you have a look in Genesis 3, um, uh, sorry, Genesis 9, verse 3, God says to Noah, after they've gotten off the ark, he says to them, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. A couple of verses later, in verse 6, he says, he sort of opens this up, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. These passages aren't saying that animals have no value at all and that we can treat them however we want. 
But God is saying that there's a significant difference between animals and people. And people are special because they've been made in the image of God. This word murder is always directed at an individual. It's talking about homicide. Uh, homicide is made up of two Latin words. I, I, like, I like etymology and understanding what words mean. Uh, the first word is homo, meaning man, and sidium, the act of murder. So we have genocide, which is the, the killing of a genus or a group of people. We have regicide, which is killing a regent or a king. We have infanticide, killing an infant. And now we have here homicide. We're talking about the taking of human life. So that's the human part, and now we'll look at the unauthorised parts, which is maybe a little bit more controversial. And to help us differentiate between the different words that are used, it might help to know that the Hebrew word here, you don't have to remember it, but it's called, the Hebrew word is retzach. And it's a word that's used back then for both murder and assassination, and it's actually still used in modern Hebrew to mean those same two things. There are other words for the proper or authorised taking of human life. So one example is, is human life taken by the government. So in 2 Kings 14, uh, the word makim is used to talk about the king justly taking the lives of a bunch of servants who had just killed the previous king, his father. It's a different word used because it's an authorised usage of the taking of life. In Genesis 18.25, the word hamit is used to talk about a sentence of death, to execute, follow out, carry out the legal sentence of death. There are times when the taking of human life is authorised by God. I wonder if that's a, a radical concept for some of us, that God authorises the taking of human life. But because all life has been created by God and belongs to God, and because God's perfect justice means that he will act even against people, the authorization by God for the taking of human life is not murder. I wonder if you've had someone on a Facebook or just in a general discussion talk about this. God being a murderer. Saying how could he take the life of a child or of an innocent person? Well, God is in control of that life. He owns it. And he dispenses justice as he sees fit. And it's not murder. He will sometimes command the taking of human life. I want to give you some examples of what that looks like. First one is talking about manslaughter. Uh, God authorises the taking of human life in reaction to manslaughter. So Exodus 21, actually a lot of these are coming out of Exodus. Uh, Exodus 21, God says to someone who's got a dirty great big cow. Have you seen uh, those uh, Scottish Highland cows with the dirty great big horns sticking out the sides or something like that? I love those cows. I sort of imagine one of those. But it's someone who's got a cow like that uh, with enormous horns. And God says in, in Exodus 21, 
He says to the person who has been so lazy or uncaring or foolhardy or cheap that ever since the last time that great big cow got out and gored a bunch of people and they almost died and that person was warned about it and they still haven't chained them up and now someone's been gored to death this time? God says to that person, that's first degree manslaughter. This is not right. You have sinned deeper. You've allowed by your negligence or laziness or or foolhardiness a precious human life to be taken. And God has given authorization in Exodus 21 that a man's life can be taken under those circumstances after due process has been carried out. Why? Because human life is precious. And the one who lets it be taken away easily needs to be taken out. Another circumstance besides manslaughter is war. God commands his people to go to war sometimes. In fact, in Exodus, God's about to send his people into the promised land. But guess what the thing is about the promised land? It's filled with people already. They're already living there. It's a land filled with people who have homes and they've been living there for centuries and they've put together vineyards and all sorts of other facilities around the place. But God sends Israel into Canaan and he says to them, go in, take the land and kill all the people. All of them. Don't spare any of them. In fact, they get in trouble a little bit later on for sparing some. But this is not murder. See, God has seen... I see some incredulous looks, especially with the kids. (laughs) This is not murder. See, God has seen these people over hundreds of years. He's seen this culture. It's a culture that has actively rejected God. Back in Genesis 15, uh, before people went into Exodus, God spoke to Abraham and he said, I'm going to give you this promised land. This land's going to be for you, but now's not the time. And you might ask, why is now not the time? Why couldn't we go in and get it now? God says, your descendants are going to come back in a few hundred years to take the land because, and I quote, The iniquity of the Amorites, the people who lived in there, is not yet complete. What does that mean? It means the people are bad. They're wicked people now. But they're not yet at the point where I'm prepared to carry out my justice against them by wiping them all out. But they're going to get there one day. These people are growing in their wickedness. They are not turning back. They are going to become an abomination and become so impure and wicked and evil that they all need to be taken out. They do all sorts of things. They they start wars with God's people a little bit later on. They sacrifice their own children to other gods by burning them alive. They do all sorts of wicked and evil things. And God says, if you're going to move in next door to these people... You're not going to act in their lives to purify them as a people. They're so bad, they're going to act in your lives to pollute you as a people. 
And we can't have that. And my judgment on this people is to wipe them out. It's the authorised taking of human life, which is not what this commandment's talking about. This commandment's talking about the unauthorised taking of human life because human life is precious. So quickly, there's a few things that this commandment does prohibit. So firstly, straight out murder. That one seems clear. We can't do that. Uh, Secondly, manslaughter, death through carelessness or negligence is prohibited here by this commandment. There's a couple more controversial ones that I want to raise really briefly. Suicide and euthanasia here are prohibited by this commandment. See, even in those types of circumstances where the person themselves sees little meaning or value in their life or anything to be accomplished or gained for this, in this world or for anybody else, God still says to that person struggling with their own life, I find value here in you. You mean something to me. I have a purpose for you, even if you don't see it. Human life is precious. Lastly, one more thing that this commandment prohibits. It's incredibly divisive these days, but this prohibits abortion. Abortion is the unauthorised taking of a human life. Scientifically, an unborn human child meets in abundance all seven scientific criterion for, for human life. It has every single one of them. Scientifically, it is defined as life. It's alive as anybody else is. Scientifically, the DNA that is in that life is indistinguishable from that of a baby that is born. There is no way that we can say that this life is not alive or that it is not human. And so abortion is the unauthorised taking of human life and it's wrong. That life is precious to God. And the West is slaughtering children by the hundreds of thousands every year. Now, I do want to say at this point, I really don't know what goes on in people's lives and what we keep covered up. But if this has been you for whatever reason, I I don't want to speak to you from up here at a distance, but if you want to talk about what this means for you, if you've done something like this, I'd love to talk to you personally and, and pray with you and talk with you about how you can find peace with God even after something so horrendous. I'd love to talk with you about that. Because God finds human life to be incredibly precious. But a second point is that not only is the, the taking or the end point of human life precious to God, but the way human life is lived is important to God as well. So the way we live our lives is also important. See, Jesus actually opens up, we read it in Matthew 5, uh, 
he takes this commandment a little bit further than just the simple fact of taking human life. So in Matthew 5, 21, I'll read a little bit of it again. Uh, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. He's talking about this commandment, referring to it. And that whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, he extends this commandment, whoever is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, which is a term of abuse, the, the word there, will be liable to the hell of fire. Murder brings judgment, yes. <laughs> but so does anger, this state of being very angry, a state of rage or wrath or fury, and violence and abuse. All of these are what is implied in this sixth commandment. Jesus connects the action of murder with the attitude, the root of the problem, where it begins, which is anger. The root of the sin is anger and wrath against another person, and both are problematic. We do, however, want to divide anger up into a couple of different groups. Uh, you might have heard of the term righteous anger being talked about uh, in Scripture before. We have the terms righteous and unrighteous anger. In Mark 3 verse 5, we actually find that Jesus, the pure, sinless, blameless Son of God, is angry at the Pharisees for their lack of compassion. God has spoken about in Exodus just a few chapters before this, uh, when Moses sings a song. Moses sings a song to God, triumphing who God is. He says, in the greatness of your majesty, in all the ways that you are great and majestic, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. And here's the thing, it's not just righteous anger because it's God being angry. Okay? God isn't the only one who can have or possess or be righteously angry. People can have righteous anger too. Paul says in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. It's not don't be angry because that is sin. He's saying be angry, but don't let it turn to sin. So, parents, have any of you, do you think, been justly, rightly angry? You don't have to stick up your hands. <laughs> if your kids, for example, were to be incredibly rude to you, you would have right to be justly angry. But screaming the house down, beating them, murdering them, is an inappropriate or a sinful action, expression of that anger. We can actually make up a bit of a grid for this. So I've got, hopefully it works. Does it work? We always have this nice little awkward pause before things work properly, don't we? We need a little activity to do while we're coming up. Maybe I should move on early because as soon as I move on, it usually... Yeah, nope. We're getting close. 
We might move on then. That's all right. We don't have to worry about it. I hear noises. That's still not it. We'll move on. Whether you've been part of taking a human life or not, the real issue here is that we've all indulged in the root of the problem many, many times. You've let your anger overflow into rage. Maybe you've acted out and let somebody else have it. We've all abused people, yelled at our kids, yelled at our parents, yelled at our spouse, yelled at another driver on the road. And I use the word indulge intentionally because here's what really shows us it's sin. Our anger and our abuse, our yelling, hurts other people, but yet we love it. Have you thought about this? Our anger hurts other people, but yet we love it. We love our anger. We wouldn't do it if it didn't feel good, right? If it felt bad, we'd stop doing it. We yell, we abuse, we, we let our anger boil over into wrath because it feels good. It feels great to let our irritation loose on someone else. When we boil over, when we let the dog off the chain, we feel liberated. The... A couple of medical sites tell me that there's two types of adrenaline that are released when we're angry. One increases the heart rate and the blood pressure, gets us really fired up even more, and the other gives us that feeling of the adrenaline rush. And there's this uh, other hormone, a, a stress hormone called cortisol, and when we yell and scream, that re gets reduced and, and our brain gets stimulated. We, we love our anger. We love to release it in spite of the damage it causes. The reality is we love to indulge in hurting one another. And it's a problem. It pervades all of human culture. And God looks at our unrighteous action and the sinful, sorry, our unrighteous anger and the sinful actions that come out of it. And he is righteously angry at the way we indulge in causing pain with one another. He's angry in a righteous way because we are unrighteous. Whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, Jesus here isn't talking about something that can undo our salvation. But he's saying that our anger is a serious breaking of the sixth commandment. He hates it. He's angry at it. And there's a penalty to be paid for it. It's so serious, it's going to take your life. Because someone who delights in anger and the pain and destruction that it causes is a wretch. Have you, have you thought about yourself as a wretch? Maybe you think that's too strong. If you think it's too strong, it's probably because you're viewing it from the wrong side of the anger. 
Have you seen the, uh, the ads on TV or on Facebook, the It's Never Okay ads? Uh, I don't know if you've seen them. Um, they have like a paramedic or a nurse who's, who's working away doing their job and the paramedic gets, gets punched in slow motion while he's talking to you by, by the people who are witnessing it. And the nurse who's trying to help someone gets spat at by this woman who's just angry. Those ads are trying to get people to see the other side. See what it's like for the person who receives it. A side that's not thought of when we're stressed or frustrated and angry. But that side is real. The person you're angry at is a real person. Whether it's a stranger or a spouse or or your kids. And it causes damage. People remember it for the rest of their lives. Maybe you can help me finish this sentence. Are you ready? Help me finish this sentence. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but... Yeah. Maybe I can read you this. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can also hurt me. Sticks and stones break only skin, while words are ghosts that haunt me. Pain from words has left its scar on mind and heart that's tender. Cuts and bruises now have healed. It's words that I remember. We hurt people. We are a wretched people who break this commandment all the time. But, but, (laughs) I love the but. Jesus is standing here in the Sermon on the Mount talking about this. Jesus isn't here talking through a prophet. He's not speaking from the top of Mount Sinai at a distance. He's not on earth here just to highlight the problem but to do something about it. He's highlighting how substantial the problem is, not just with words, but with his presence and with his death that follows. If you're a Christian, you follow a saviour, not just a leader. You follow a God who, yes, hates sin, hates it more than we can ever imagine for the great trauma it leaves behind, but hates to leave us in sin as well. He hates it, our sin, and loves you so much that he takes the Father's righteous anger and the appropriate actions that follow from it and he bears the fires of hell for every attitude and word and action that you've ever had. And you're untouched except by the tender hand of the father who has now adopted you who's made us brothers with our saviour who's given an inherit given us an inheritance with him we aren't left in a state of wretchedness or misery before the father anymore He's washed us clean, not with water that could do nothing, but with his blood. Wretched no more. 
forgiven and free through Jesus. What a burden's been lifted. Did, did anybody read The Pilgrim's Progress? I think it's Alan's favourite book of all time. Uh, Pilgrim's Progress is a wonderful story. And there's a moment uh, where the pilgrim has been walking all his life with this huge, heavy burden that somehow seems part of him and then he can, cannot get rid of. And he, he finally gets to the, the cross, this mysterious cross that he, he doesn't truly understand. But he gets there and when, he, when he's washed clean by the blood of the cross, this burden falls away. And it's no longer part of him. It's been dealt with. The staggering weight of our guilt, not just from indiscretions, but sin, and not just this sin, but all sin, not just the public sin, but all sin, is nailed to the cross. And we bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Lord God, we do praise you. We thank you that through Jesus, you have lifted the burden of our sin. We thank you that, that it is sin to you, that we, that we have fury and anger and wrath towards each other and that human life is taken. We thank you that you hold human life to be so precious and so precious that you have rescued our lives from the coming destruction. Thank you for Jesus, Lord. We praise you and him for the rest of time. Amen.